Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, your host here on Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we harvest the fruits from the crop of the last week in journalism on the Vatican and the global Catholic Church and try to figure out, separate the wheat from the chaff, basically, figure out what actually matters. Here's what we've got for you this week. First, Putin's last line of defense. So the abortive, well, I don't really even know what to call it. Mutiny, insurrection, uprising, coup, contretemps, I don't know. But, you know, whatever happened in Russia over the weekend is obviously the dominant global news headline. Now, one of the interesting bits of subtext is what it revealed to us about the most important institutional base of support for Vladimir Putin. Turns out it's not the military, obviously, nor is it the oligarchs who have long had his back, some of whom reportedly fled Russia, or at least getting ready to, depending on how things played out. It was instead the Russian Orthodox Church, which from the very beginning, compactly in terms of its leadership, had Putin's back. We'll explain what the ecumenical implications of that might be going forward. Okay, second up this week, we have grading the guidelines. So the somewhat embattled Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, created by Pope Francis to be the tip of the spear in the anti-sexual abuse effort in the Catholic Church, has issued a draft of a new framework for anti-abuse guidelines to be adapted by bishops' conferences and dioceses and religious orders and other Catholic entities around the world. They have also invited comment through an online poll on their website. We'll explain the significance of all of this and what it might mean going forward. Third, art for art's sake. This week, Pope Francis held a meeting in the Sistine Chapel with more than 200 artists, filmmakers, writers, creative personalities of all kinds, including some, you know, somewhat unexpected guests. I mean, Americans, for instance, might be somewhat surprised to learn that on the guest list was Andres Serrano, who was the artist who, in 1987, gave us the infamous Piss Christ photo, an image of a plastic crucifix in a jar of the artist's own urine, which created no end of controversy in Christian and Catholic circles. He was there, along with some others. We'll try to explain what Pope Francis's message was and what he was trying to accomplish. Next up, we have the perils of pilgrimage. Right now, the Vatican and the city of Rome are getting ready for the great jubilee year of 2025 when an anticipated 32 million extra visitors are going to course through the eternal city. I've got, on the, as somebody who lives here, okay, I've got just a little bit of pastoral guidance for anybody who is considering joining the party in 2025, which I'm going to pass along. Next, we've got a shout out for the Vatican girl. So in his Angelus address on Sunday, Pope Francis noted the 40th anniversary of the 1983 disappearance of 15-year-old Emanuela Orlandi, the daughter of a minor Vatican employee, whose fate has gone on to become basically the Kennedy assassination of Italy, that is a national obsession which is a never-ending source of controversy and conspiracy theory and speculation and division. We'll explain what the Pope said, which honestly wasn't a great deal, but nevertheless, we'll chronicle it, and then what it might mean. And then finally, when liturgy turns lethal, 
Folks, this is my candidate for the most interesting Catholic story anywhere in the world going on right now. It's a liturgical dispute in India in which the cost of the controversy is measured not just in bruised egos, but in bruised noses, abdomens, and knuckles. We'll break down what's going on and why it matters. All that and more is waiting for you on this edition of Last Week in the Church. So please, I mean, this is great stuff. Don't go anywhere. Hello, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. This week, of course, on Thursday includes the great feast of Saints Peter and Paul. So as we would say here in Italy, in anticipo, buona festa. Happy feast day to you. We begin this week with the dramatic events over the weekend in Russia, where the head of the Wagner Group, that band of mercenaries that has been Putin's tip of the spear in Ukraine, well, essentially led, and again, it's hard to know exactly what word to use here, uprising, mutiny, insurrection, we don't know. But in any event, threatened Putin's authority, briefly occupied the military headquarters of Rostov, which is a city in Russia near eastern Ukraine that has been the base of Russian military operations in the region. And then within just a few hours, basically, after Putin had gone on national TV to say that these guys were traitors guilty of a massive stab in the back and they were all going to be shot to death, you know, within a few hours, a deal was brokered where the head of the Wagner Group was able to, you know, basically go off to Belarusia and his soldiers are not, apparently not going to be subject to any kind of punishment. What was interesting from a religious point of view about all of this is that in that brief window of time when the drama was playing out, mostly concentrated on Saturday, who really stepped up in Russia to have Putin's back? Really, it wasn't the armed forces. You know, obviously, the Wagner Group was part of the Russian military operation. And those guys, those soldiers who fight for Wagner, they got plenty of friends who are in other units of the Russian military. So the military kind of stood on the sidelines. When that you know, unit of the Wagner Group was making its way to Moscow, they encountered no resistance whatsoever, right? So it would be hard to say that the military compactly demonstrated absolute fealty to Putin. And also, it wasn't the oligarchs who have long been his main base of support. Reportedly, some of them made preparations to flee Russia. They all remain conspicuously silent, waiting to see how all this was going to play out. But you know who did speak up right away? It was the leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church. Patriarch Kirill of Moscow, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, immediately, within minutes of news of this insurrection, put out a statement saying that anyone threatening national unity was guilty of, quote, the greatest of all crimes. And he called upon Russian Orthodox believers to pray for an immediate end to all of this and a change of heart among the mutineers. The Metropolitan of Rostov, that is that city where the Wagner Group temporarily took control of the military command post, he immediately called a public prayer gathering asking for what he described as the quote-unquote uninvited guests of Rostov to get out. And, you know, basically saying we need to come together to pray for unity, compactness, meaning we need to stand behind President Putin. And another metropolitan who was in effect the chaplain to the Russian armed forces described the Wagner group as doing, quote, the work of the devil. 
and said that anyone who is threatening legitimate authority in Russia, i.e. Putin, is on the side of Satan and actually basically suggested that if this went on much longer, he would perform an exorcism intended to drive the evil spirits out of the Wagner contingent and anyone else who was rising up against Vladimir Putin. Now, in some ways, this should be no surprise, right? A tight relationship between throne and altar has always been a defining feature of Russian Orthodox history. Nevertheless, it could have repercussions going forward in terms of ecumenical relations between the Catholic Church and particularly the Vatican and the Russian Orthodox Church. There has been talk about a new meeting between Pope Francis and Patriarch Kirill. There's also been some talk that the Pope's designated peace envoy, Cardinal Matteo Zuppi of Bologna, that his entree into Moscow might come through the offices of the Russian Orthodox Church. I mean, the difficulty now really would be that the Vatican from the beginning in this conflict, as we all well know, has tried to take an even-handed approach that is aligned neither with Ukraine and the West nor with Russia and its allies. Well, now any kind of overly close dalliance between the Pope and Kirill or the Vatican and the Russian Orthodox Church, probably, certainly by the Ukrainians anyway, would be seen through the lens of the Vatican cozying up to the one institution in Russia that didn't have a single critical word to speak about Vladimir Putin. And not only that, also didn't hold its silence, but came out fulsomely in support of the president. So in other words, bottom line, this may complicate efforts for some kind of new detente between the Vatican and the Russian Orthodox. We shall see. All right. Second this week, grading the guidelines. So the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors was created by Pope Francis at the very beginning of his papacy to lead the charge for reform on the clerical sexual abuse scandals. It's basically intended to be the Pope's main sounding board, his main advisory body as he crafts policy. And most recently, this commission has, you know, it, it's, well, look, it has not had the best run over the last few months. Most prominently, Jesuit father Hans Zollner of Rome's Gregorian University who runs what is now an institute for anthropology there, but was for a long time a center for child protection and is widely considered perhaps the Catholic Church's leading expert in anti-abuse efforts. He defected from the commission, citing concerns about transparency and accountability and its independence and decision-making procedures and a whole laundry list of things. That has raised questions about, you know, the future of the commission. Well, this week, it unveiled a new framework which it has dispatched to bishops' conferences and other Catholic leaders around the world, which is intended to serve as a template for bishops' conferences and dioceses and religious orders and other Catholic entities to craft their own anti-abuse guidelines using the kind of core ideas of the framework but adapting them to local circumstances. And the commission has also rolled out on its website an online poll for people to be able to react to this framework. So they are inviting comment from the public before the framework is finalized later this year. This is the first time the Vatican has issued such a framework since 2011. So it has been 12 years 
and the idea is that this framework is supposed to reflect all of the changes in the law and in practice engineered over Pope Francis, particularly by Pope Francis over the last decade. Now, you know, at one level you could say, well, this is a, a rebound for the commission, right? It's getting up off the mat and back into the game, and that is undeniably a very positive thing. On the other hand, here's the critical question that is going to be asked. Okay, theoretically, there has been a framework in place to draft anti-abuse guidelines since 2011. Yet, everyone knows that in many parts of the world, particularly in the global south, bishops conferences, dioceses, religious orders, and other Catholic organizations haven't done it. Okay, there, and there's been no consequence. Nobody has been disciplined for failure to issue a set of guidelines. So the question is gonna be, okay, what about now? Like, you know, is, is there gonna be any follow through? Will there be any consequences for saying, okay, thanks for the input, but no thanks? And there's no indication of that. I mean, what we do know is that the commission has said that it's going to start issuing an annual report in 2024 so that when bishops come to Rome for their ad limina visits, they can be asked about whether or not they've implemented this framework. But there's no indication that there would be any punishment for failure to do so. So I would guess that as the reaction rolls in, that's certainly a point that many people will raise. We'll see what the commission and ultimately, you know, the authority to whom the commission reports, which is Pope Francis, what they decide to do. All right. So that's it for the guidelines. Third up this week, we have art for art's sake. So as I mentioned at the top this week, Pope Francis had a meeting with 200 filmmakers like Ken Loach from the UK, famous filmmaker, artists of different kinds, including pop artists like the Italian rock star Liga Bue was on hand, writers Roberto Saviano, a famous Italian writer, and so on. And this was all to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Vatican opening a modern art collection, which happened under Pope, now Saint, Paul VI, who famously said that the breach between church and culture was the defining tragedy of the modern age. And this was a partial effort to help heal that breach. Now, some people were surprised by some of the figures who were on the guest list. It certainly raised some eyebrows among Americans, for instance, that Andres Serrano, an American artist, was in the crowd. Serrano, of course, is famous or infamous, notorious, depending on what word you want to use, for having, in 1987, produced a photograph provocatively titled Piss Christ, which depicts plastic crucifix in a jar of the artist's own urine. Now, this was widely seen at the time and in the years since as tremendously offensive. At the time, Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina in the United States led a crusade against the National Endowment of the Arts because it gave, I think in the end it was like, 20 grand to Serrano to subsidize his work. And Helms, speaking on behalf of Christians everywhere, I guess, declared himself outraged about that. You know, later on in 1997, so a decade later, when Piss Christ was going to be displayed in a museum in Melbourne, Australia, the then Archbishop of Melbourne, George Pell, later Cardinal George Pell, went to court to try to block the exhibition. And when that failed, 
protesters inspired by Pell's typically fiery rhetoric attacked the image in the museum and it had to be withdrawn. My point is, it has been a lightning rod for controversy over the years, although we should say that Serrano himself has always described himself as a faithful Catholic. And he said the point of this image was to, because, you know, the, the crucifix has in some ways become domesticated, right? We've all become used to it. So the point of this image was to shock modern observers into realizing the, the depth of the humility, the degradation that the Christ experienced on the cross. So, you know, whatever you make of it, it is striking that, you know, Serrano and other figures like him were in the crowd. What was going on here? Well, look, Pope Francis believes he's a Pope of dialogue, right? And particularly with people outside the church, that is, with secular circles of opinion who have long been somewhat hostile to the church, he's trying to engineer a kind of rapprochement with that constituency. And in addition, he also used this opportunity to deliver a message to these artists, which was, don't forget the poor. Now, what was striking about this is that afterwards, Ken Loach, the famous British filmmaker who was known for very socially conscious films. I mean, I particularly am a big fan of his film Bread and Roses, which was about a janitor strike in L.A. It's just, it's a brilliant movie. I mean, whether you agree with his politics or not, the movie is brilliant. But in any event, who was an unavowedly, right, like liberal filmmaker, the very progressive filmmaker, said afterwards that he believed that if Pope Francis belonged to the Labour Party in the UK, which is supposedly the left-wing party, right? He said he believed that Pope Francis would be kicked out of the Labour Party today because it has moved too far to the right for this pope. Which is another reminder of Pope Francis, you know, what I have described before as the Gorbachev phenomenon about Pope Francis. This is a pope who is wildly popular in many circles outside the Catholic Church, who nevertheless remains often quite controversial in some circles inside the Catholic Church. And the red carpet that he and his team rolled out for the likes of Andre Serrano and Ken Loach this past week is probably going to be another chapter in why some Catholics, well, their heart rate goes up when the conversation turns to the Pope. All right, fourth up this week, the perils of pilgrimage. So as I mentioned at the top, we have the great jubilee of 2025 looming on the calendar. Archbishop, Italian Archbishop Rino Fisichella, who is in charge of the Vatican's planning efforts, has projected that 32 million additional visitors during the course of the jubilee period, which runs from December 2024, when Pope Francis will open the holy door in St. Peter's Basilica, to January 6, 2026, the Feast of the Epiphany. During that period, Fisichella believes it will have 32 million additional visitors in Rome. That's on top of the tidal waves of humanity that already washed through the city every year just for vacation and so on. Now, the question is, is the city going to be ready? The official answer that the city gives is, oh, yeah, I mean, we're going to spend $2 billion on public works. Don't worry, everything's going to be fine. The more realistic answer being given by a number of figures in Italy, including this week, the leading business association in Italy is that we don't believe any of that and we don't want you to start any of these works because it's simply going to paralyze the city. So just don't do it. Don't even bother. Don't even try. Okay. Now, look, I could parse all of this for you all until the cows come home. I mean, you know, my wife and I live here. We see the realities of Rome every day. Let me just tell you, 
that in this past year, with the explosion of pent-up demand for tourism, Rome has been overwhelmed. In March and April alone, the estimate from a local hotel owners association is that 2.3 million people came to the city, booking 5.4 million hotel nights. It's an average of two and a half nights each. Utterly exhausting capacity. The city is overwhelmed. Trash is not getting picked up. Buses, trams are behind schedule. Hotels are not only overbooked, but prices are through the roof. For a three-star hotel right now, you would pay 500 euros a night. It's just, it's staggering. And it's only going to get worse the closer we get to the Jubilee. So here's my advice for anybody who is pondering coming for the Jubilee year in 2025. If you can adopt the medieval model of pilgrimage, which is it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be unpleasant. You're supposed to suffer on the way to your goal. If you can own that, then yeah, by all means come to Rome because we're gonna deliver hardship, suffering, and unpleasantness to you in droves, okay? Now, on the other hand, if you're looking for a Holiday Inn Express, you know, kind of experience, where you check in, you go to your lovely air-conditioned room, you pay a reasonable fee, you call a cab to go to wherever you wanna go, and it's all nice and easy, that is likely not going to be the tenor of this experience. And so my point is, if you want to come as a pilgrim, ready to pay the price, okay. If you want to come as a tourist, go to Mali. You know, go to the Bahamas. Go someplace else, because this is not going to be your scene. All right, next, shout out for the Vatican girls. So this last Thursday, June 22nd, was the 40th anniversary of the disappearance of 15-year-old Emanuela Orlandi, who was the daughter of Ettore Orlandi, who was what they call an usciero, an usher, in the prefecture of the papal household under John Paul II. The family lived in an apartment on Vatican grounds. Actually, some of the family members still live in that same apartment. And when she disappeared, her disappearance, therefore, became framed as a Vatican story. And over the years, it has become a magnet for every conspiracy theory you can imagine from, you know, it was the KGB. No, it was the mob. No, it was a pedophile ring and on and on and on and on. Her brother, Pietro Orlandi, has dedicated his life to the search for the truth about his sister. And so on the 40th anniversary, he had said that he was going to call a sit-in for the next Sunday, so this last Sunday, in St. Peter's Square, where he invited people to show up with pictures of Emanuela and basically threw down a gauntlet to the Pope saying, we are expecting you to have something to say. Now, normally, when you tell Pope Francis in public what he has to do, that is a prescription for him to do the exact opposite, okay? You know, whatever else we want to say about Pope Francis, I think anyone would agree that he does not like being painted into a corner. But in this case, as the good Bishop of Rome and the good primate of Italy that he tries to be, understanding what a defining national trauma this has been for Italy, he delivered. So he began with a statement of concern about prison conditions in Honduras. But after that, he transitioned to the Orlandi case saying, this week, the 40th anniversary of the disappearance of Emanuela occur or fell, said, I want to use this opportunity to renew my closeness to the family, above all, to the mom, 
that is Emanuela's mom, and also to assure all those whose loved ones have disappeared that I am praying for them and my heart is with them. Now, this was Pietro Orlandi who immediately praised this, said it was an enormously important development. It occurs while the Italian Senate is debating whether or not to open a parliamentary investigation. Clearly, Pietro Orlandi is hoping that the Pope's words will provide momentum for that to happen. That would build upon an investigation that's already been opened by the Vatican's promoter of justice and also by the procurator of the city of Rome, basically the Roman DA. You know, what comes out of all of this, of course, remains to be seen. But it is an interesting test case where Pope Francis found a reasonably artful way to thread the needle. He didn't lend additional credibility to Pietro Orlandi. Remember, of course, it was Pietro who recently went on national television in Italy to suggest that John Paul II had connived in a Vatican pedophile ring and that maybe his sister had been killed to cover it up. Because Pope Francis didn't reference Pietro, he referenced his 93-year-old mother. But on the other hand, he also demonstrated his pastoral concern for the fate of Emanuela and the Orlandi family, which I think is probably what most Italians were waiting to hear. Finally, this week, we come to when liturgy turns lethal. And if you have not been following this story, I really urge you to do so, because I do think this is maybe the single most interesting Catholic story percolating on the global stage right now. It is centered in India, specifically in southern India, within the Syro-Malabar Catholic Church. That is the second largest of the 23 Eastern churches in communion with Rome. So the largest, of course, is the Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine, which in Ukraine and worldwide has a following of about 6 million. The Syro-Malabar Church in India and elsewhere has a following of about 4.5 million. And to put that in context for you, that is basically the Catholic population of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles in the United States. So one of the largest archdioceses in the world. Okay, so it is by no means trivial. Okay, 4.5 million people. In 2021, the leadership of the Syro-Malabar Church in their synod, which is unlike Pope Francis's version of a synod, right, which is bishops and priests and nuns and lay people and cats and dogs and, you know, everybody. In the Eastern tradition, a synod is composed entirely of bishops, right? So the synod of the Syro-Malabar Church, meaning its bishops, in 2021 made a decision to adopt a uniform mode of celebrating the Mass in the Syro-Malabar Rite. And basically, this uniform mode involves the priest at certain points during the Mass facing the altar and at other points during the Mass facing the congregation. Now, this was a return to the earlier custom in the Syro-Malabar Church and therefore a break with what had become the practice since the Second Vatican Council in the mid-1960s of the priest facing the congregation throughout the liturgy, okay? And that uniform system ran into significant opposition from certain elements of the Syro-Malabar Church. It's concentrated largely in the largest eparchy of the Syro-Malabar Church. And you know what? I spent 20 minutes this morning trying to memorize the name of this place, and I am utterly blanking on it. You can find this in articles on the Crux site. 
Eclonum algamine, I think something like that. But in any event, it is the largest archeparchy of the Cerro Malabar Church. It's located in Southern India. And many of the clergy and laity in this archeparchy who see themselves not unjustly as the heart of the Cerro Malabar Church because something like at least half of its membership is located in this one archeparchy. So they have risen up en masse, if you will pardon the pun, to resist these liturgical changes. Now look, folks, when I first started covering the Catholic Church in the 1990s, we had back then what we called liturgy wars in the United States, right? I mean, people were arguing over whether the tabernacle, where the tabernacle ought to be placed in church. Does it have to be right behind the altar or can it be someplace else? And what does that say about the Eucharistic faith of this place? We also argued over liturgical translation. You remember this? Like, you know, when we decided to change the words at the mass, for instance, from the Lord be with you and also with you to the Lord be with you and with your spirit. And you remember, you know, how nuts some people went about all of this. But here's the thing. Our version of the liturgy wars involved, oh, you know, contentious op-ed pieces in Catholic journals and nasty comments on blogs. You know what's going on in the Cyril Malabar church in India? Protesters have stormed cathedrals, like the Cathedral of St. Mary's in Kochi, in Kerala State, which is basically the mothership of the Cyril Malabar Church. It has been closed for months because people will not allow this new, allegedly uniform way of celebrating the Mass to be celebrated. The news this week is that the papally appointed apostolic administrator of this archeparchy, a guy by the name of Archbishop Fazhoth, Fazhoth, has put out a seven-page decree in which he has said that the people who were opposing these liturgical changes, and I am quoting here, are guilty of fostering, what is it, subversion and hatred against ecclesiastical authority. Subversion and hatred, okay? That is strong language, right? He has said that the parish council at this basilica, which has been resisting the changes, is going to be dissolved If it doesn't fall in line, he has said that the vicar of this basilica is going to be fired if he doesn't fall into line, and he has threatened canonical sanctions against anyone else who is standing up against the the decision by the Synod, the Cyril Malabar Church, to impose this liturgy. How are the people of the archeparchy responding? Well, this past Sunday, they gathered in front of St. Mary's Cathedral where they took a copy of Archbishop Fazhath's decree and burned it publicly. Now, Fazhat has set a July 2nd deadline for everyone to fall in line. The resistors have announced a massive protest gathering on July 2nd in front of the cathedral in which they intend to defy these edicts and physically, if necessary, prevent this new form of the mass, which they regard as an aberration and a betrayal of their traditions from being celebrated in what they regard as their cathedral. Now, the Synod is claiming to have the Pope's backing in its efforts to ram through this new approach, but to date, Francis has not yet directly addressed this controversy. It's going to be very interesting to see going forward exactly what, how he's going to handle this, right? Because on the one hand, 
you know, he extols synodality all the time. And here he has a synod that has made a decision which people are defying. On the other hand, his version of synodality isn't theirs, right? It's not just the bishops, but it's also, you know, religious, and it's the people of God. It's ordinary lay people. And many of those religious and ordinary lay people, at least in this one jurisdiction, are saying, no way, Jose. So it's going to be really interesting to see if, when, and how Pope Francis decides to weigh into this controversy. In the meantime, folks, this is the closest thing in contemporary Catholic experience to those moments in the fourth century, in the run-up to the Council of Nicaea, where you actually had riots in the streets over whether Christ was fully God and fully man, as orthodoxy insisted, or whether, as the Arians demanded, he was somehow subordinate to the Father. Back then, these weren't just things that pointy-headed theologians argued over in learned journals. It was the, it was the grist of popular life in the streets because people were all in. And if you want a place in the world where you still have that level of passion, however misguided and however unfortunately explosive it may be, if you want to see a place where people are willing to bleed and die for their vision of the liturgy, look no further than India's Cyril Malabar Church. All right, that is our show for this week. We got full coverage of all of these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. I remind you, that our fundraising campaign on behalf of our managing editor, Charles Collins, who is currently fighting for his life in a hospital in the UK while his wife, Claire, and their two boys are struggling to get by while their primary breadwinner is sidelined. Our campaign to raise money for the family is ongoing. You can find a link to it on the Crux site. If you can, we would be eternally grateful for your contributions. We will be back here next week, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, keep reading Crux, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again very soon.